Well, tonight, as you can see on the screen, I am excited to start a new series on personal evangelism. Personal evangelism. Well, last semester we studied uh, a series on the gospel together. Do you remember that? It wasn't on Thursday nights, it was on Sunday mornings. Yeah? Do you remember that or no? You've forgotten it since then. It's been a while. Well, we ended that series with a discussion about evangelism. It was brief. Uh, And after that series, I had so many of you come up to me and say, can we please keep talking about this? And uh, I was on a time constraint in that series, and I had to finish. A number of you were going home for the summer, and we or for the winter break, I think is what it was. And we had other things that we needed to cover. So... Tonight, your persistence has paid off. All right, we're going to start a, a, this series on personal evangelism, and uh, I'm looking forward to it probably as much, if not more, than you are, because I have some questions, especially in the practical application side, that I'm looking forward to um, hammering out myself. But as much as I love you, uh, wanting to study, uh, the fact that you wanted to study this topic, that's not my only reason for choosing it, Okay. This topic has been on my heart um, because of just the sheer amount of confusion that we see regarding this topic of evangelism. People are confused. The church is confused, the church at large, about what evangelism is, how to go about evangelism biblically, what conversion is, how to measure conversion. And last December... Um, I saw a very just disheartening example of how much fog exists in the church, in the evangelical church, uh, when it comes to sharing the gospel of Christ. Back in December, Babylon B had Elon Musk on their show. Did anybody see this interview? They interviewed him for over an hour and a half. They talked about a variety of topics, and... A lot of it was funny, as you would imagine, uh, from Babylon B. But then in the, in the last six minutes of this hour and a half long interview, the, the satire folks tried to get serious. The inspirational music started playing, I kid you not, at the six minute mark of the, of the interview. They dubbed that in. For the audience that was watching it, playing softly in the background. And they asked him their final question of this interview. And it went like this. Yeah, uh, we're here. Um, The Babylon Bee is a Christian organization. Uh, You know, we're a a ministry. I pulled this transcript from the YouTube video, by the way. So, I can't recreate it, but you get the point. We're here. We're the Babylon Bee, Christian organization. You know, uh, we're a ministry. Elon Musk immediately interjected. He said, then why are we doing this show on a Sunday? After some laughter and banter back and forth, they said, well, since this is Sunday, we need to make this church. We're wondering if you can do us a quick solid and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Elon Musk looked confused, and he said, um, pause. They said, personal Savior. It's a quick prayer. And they all kind of nervously laughed amongst themselves. 
Well, Musk avoided the question, and he went on to say that he agrees with a lot of the principles that Jesus advocated. His teaching like the golden rule, you know, an eye for an eye is bad, he says, so on and so on. So as he's kind of talking about some, some of the teachings of Jesus that he might agree with, or the principles, one of them pipes up and says, so it's, it's, it's like a 60 or 70% yes. And Musk, again, avoided the question, continued on, and he said, as Einstein would say, I believe in the God of Spinoza. And he's talking about Baruch Spinoza, by the way. He's a rationalist philosopher, and he's certainly not a Christian. But hey, said Elon, if Jesus is uh, saving people, I wouldn't stand in his way. Sweet! We did it! I think he just said yes, we got him! That's what they said, literally. Transcript. The room erupted with laughter and applause. You want to get baptized or anything? He asked, half-joking. I was baptized, Elon said. They dunked me in water as a baby. Great, they said. Elon Musk went on to ridicule communion and affirm Jesus as being very pro-alcohol since he kept a party going by turning water into wine. And he's all for that, he said. Now this is a grieving example of the confusion that surrounds evangelism and evangelicalism today. It's a far cry from the bold proclamation that we see from Jesus in the Gospels and in the book of Acts from His church. Imagine Paul evangelizing like that. Asking the Jews with stones in their hands to do a quick solid and accept Jesus as their Savior. The Gospel is reduced to a quick prayer. There was no mention of Elon's sin or the cross or the cost of discipleship. And what's worse, the most discouraging thing about this interview is they did not have the discernment to see that Elon is affirming a false god, the god of Spinoza, that stands completely antithetical to Jesus Christ. And when Elon affirmed a sort of relativism, oh, kind of whatever works for you. If Jesus is saying, who am I? I'm not going to... When he affirmed that, the whole room erupted in applause. And they said, we got him. They affirmed him in his unbelieving state. And that's just one interview. This confusion has been swirling around for years within the evangelical church. Sermon after sermon, church plant after church plant. And think of what's at stake. Non-Christians are lulled into thinking that they're Christians. Christians themselves are confused. Out of our lust for converts, the church baptizes people because they made these superficial outward commitments, kind of like the 60% yes. And then the church admits these unbelievers into their membership. Eventually, these unbelievers become leaders and the church devolves into something akin to a nominal, semi-moral country club. There's no gospel clarity. It's full of unrepentant sin. There's no power for change. And some of you 
no doubt, actually came from a church like that. And there are many at your university who have home churches like this. So it is incredibly important that we understand what evangelism is biblically so that we can build on the right foundation for our own practice. And that's where our series is going to start tonight. It's going to be a four-part series. We're going to start tonight by laying a biblical foundation for evangelism. We're going to seek to understand what it is and how it's carried out according to Scripture. And so I'm calling this first message Understanding Evangelism. So you can think of it as kind of like the baseline, the foundation that we're going to build on for the rest of the, of the series. The next week, let me see if I can remember this, see where we're going. The next week, we're going to look at motivating evangelism. So we understand evangelism is hard. <laughs> it's always convicting when we talk about these things. So we're going to look at what needs, what, what does the Bible lay out for us these grand motivations for us to overcome the obstacles in our lives for evangelism. The third week, we'll look at equipping for evangelism. So what do you and I need in our lives from the church to be effective in our witness for Christ? And then the fourth week, our final week, will be strategies for evangelism. We'll try to get as practical as possible in thinking through how you and I can be effective witnesses for Christ strategically in liberty, in your family, um, wherever else you find yourself. So that's, that's kind of where we're going but tonight, this is going to be the, the sort of framework message. We're going to hang everything on, all right? So we're going to ask and answer two questions about evangelism that will help us understand, understand what this is, what it is biblically, how to carry it out. So number one, what is evangelism? It's our first question. That's where we need to start. What is it? Well, as we get going, we need, to, we need to understand and define our terms. The word evangelism, something kind of a big banner term that we've put, it, put on it in English, the word evangelism, it comes from a family of words in Greek. And if you listen to these words, you can hear the resemblances of them. I'm just going to throw them up here in Greek. I know most of you don't know Greek, but it's okay. All right, three, kind of this is a word, kind of family of words, and you can hear their resemblance. The verb euangelizo, that's the first one, euangelizo, means to preach the good news. The noun euangelion, which is good news itself. And finally, um, euangelistes, which is evangelist. All right, or the one who preaches good news. So we'll give you some translations there. Euangelizo, to preach good news. So that's the verb. But you hear the same euangel, euangel kind of in Greek, that same, those first two-thirds of the word there is the same. And you can see that in all three of them. The second word just means the good news itself or the gospel. And the third word there is one who preaches good news. Or we could, or we could throw another set of, of translations on there. Euangelizo is to evangelize. It's often just translated preach in the gospels and in Acts. But evangelize would be a good word for that. And then the next one is obviously the, the evangel or the gospel. And then the third would be our title for an evangelist. All three of these terms show up in the New Testament. Obviously the first two are the most common. 
So, in English, the verbal idea is to evangelize. And so, we can see just from a quick Greek lexicon definition, the central idea of evangelism is the proclamation of good news. Make sense? It's the proclamation. So, the verb has the idea of, of doing it. Second word, the content. And the third is the one who preaches that content. But the idea that, that, that binds all these together is the, the proclamation of the good news, the proclamation of the evangel or the gospel. Now that's a kind of bare-bones definition, the skeleton with no meat. But I think we could beef it up a little bit as we examine Scripture. So here is my working definition. You guys got this? Can we move forward? All right, working definition Evangelism is the preaching of Christ and the confronting of idolatry with the aim to persuade unto a life of discipleship. Alright, so it's the preaching of Christ, number one. Number two, the confronting of idolatry. That's two sides of the same coin. And it has a goal. The goal is persuasion or conversion. The goal is the aim to persuade to something, to a life of discipleship, to a life of following Christ. That's kind of my working definition. We might tweak it as we go along, but I think that gets at the core of really what we see when we examine this family of words and how they, they play out in, in the New Testament. So I think I take most of these from the, the book of Acts. So you can go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 8. So first, let's, let's, uh, let's take this definition apart a little bit. Do you guys have that down? Again, just a, another little promo. If you want, just email me and I can send you my manuscript. I have most of this written down. So if you don't want to write a ton. There's not a ton of writing. I try to keep my outlines pretty, pretty short. All right? So let's break this down. Let's look at uh, these first these statements um, one by one. What is evangelism? Well, first, it preaches Christ. Biblical evangelism preaches Christ. as Christ as its content. Evangelism is not correct if it doesn't preach the evangel, the good news concerning Jesus. Our message is all about Him from start to finish. And evangelism means that we explain to people who He is, what He has done, and why it's good news for them or can, or can be. Who He is, what He's done, and the implications, why this matters for them. There's so many examples of this in Acts, but I'll give you one from Philip in Acts 8, and we'll come back to him uh, later on. As we're going to see later on, Philip is significant because he is the only person that is ever described in the Bible as an evangelist. He's described as an evangelist in Acts 21, verse 8. But that doesn't mean he's the only one evangelizing. Okay? But he, this is significant. Because Luke holds him up to us here as a model for what evangelism is. Kind of in the flesh, at work. 
And notice that for Philip, evangelism is all about preaching Jesus. Okay, so this story is a familiar one. Philip's come from the Jerusalem church, and he's fleeing persecution. He's just finished planting churches in Samaria. Now he reaches an Ethiopian eunuch who's coming back from worshiping at Jerusalem. And this eunuch is even reading from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, when he's sitting on his chariot. I mean, how providential is that? Like That's the clearest Old Testament text about substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice of the Messiah. So let's pick it up in verse 30, chapter 8, verse 30. So Philip ran to him, this is the eunuch on the chariot, ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? Where's the emphasis there? On the eunuch's understanding and the understanding of Scripture. Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. This is Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then, here's the verse, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he evangelized. He told him the good news. There's our verb. Euangelizo. He told him the good news about Jesus. What's the content? Good news about who? Jesus. Beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now there's a lot to this story, but all I want you to notice is that for Philip to preach the gospel to Euangelizo... That means that he takes his time and he explains to this eunuch the significance of Jesus as the Messiah. He began with the very scripture of Isaiah 53, because that was his context. That's what the eunuch knew. He was, knew his Old Testament. So he began with Isaiah 53, but he also continued with other Old Testament prophecies and scriptures and patterns. So as he began with this scripture, so he continued on until the eunuch understood the significance of Jesus as the Christ. He had the category, and he's saying, this Jesus of Nazareth fits the category. And it's a far cry from the quick and dirty presentation to Elon Musk. If you can even call, if you can even call it that. We're often tempted to think that the people we evangelize will come to faith right after we talk about Jesus and his death. If we can just kind of get the formula out, then, you know, it's like a magic formula. That's not the case. Sometimes it happens in a, in a quicker way than maybe what we were anticipating if the person is prepared. But most of the time, evangelizing takes time, and it takes an open Bible, like Philip. It fields questions. It's patient. But it's all centered on Jesus, who he is, what he's accomplished, and why it matters for the person that you're talking to. Just a practical illustration of this. I, one time I was able to talk with a neighbor. Um, some things were falling apart in his life. I think I was talking to Isaac about this earlier. And 
he was going through a divorce. He lived right beside me in the duplex, so we ran into each other a lot. And I just invited him over. I said, you know, he was kind of seeking help. And I said, you know, your marriage is broken, but because your worship is broken. Like, you don't know the Lord who created marriage and who can help redeem it. And so he agreed to come over, and for about, I don't know, eight weeks, about two hours a pop, we sat down with open Bibles working through who God is, who is man, who is Jesus, and just patiently kind of working through the, the big gospel truths. And he did not come to faith during those meetings. I would press him, and he would say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. He knew, he knew everything he would have to give up. But about a year later, he ended up moving across town, by the way. About a year later, I connected with him, or I saw him. He actually hawked me down at Panera. I didn't even know he was in there. And he came and grabbed me, and he said, Clay, I just wanted to let you know that about six months ago, I came to Christ. And he, he told me about this scenario and how that happened and just how the Lord used a bunch of different things. And so that's just an example of of how sometimes like there's a there's a there's a Philip moment where you come alongside someone with an open Bible, you're patient with them to try to help them understand the significance of Jesus. Didn't happen in all in one meeting. So our evangelism must not be centered on or must must be centered on an explanation of Jesus, however long it takes. So biblical evangelism preaches Christ and it makes sure that the hearer as long as they're sitting there and, and willing to listen is understanding what you're saying. But that's not all. If we're proclaiming Jesus, we're also confronting idolatry. So that's the second, second uh, explanation of biblical evangelism. It confronts idolatry. We see this clearly in Acts 14. So if you flip over there, as you're done writing, Acts 14. We're going to be jumping all over tonight, so just don't get too comfortable in one passage. After Paul healed uh, a lame man in Lystra, the people uh, thought that he and Barnabas were gods. And they even wanted to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. So they're getting everything ready for the preparations for the sacrifice. And uh, Paul hears about it. And I want you to notice how he responds in chapter 14, verse 15. He says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. What is it? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So Paul, in the midst of this sort of plea for them not to sacrifice to them, Part of his gospel is identifying their idolatry. Do you catch that? He said, we bring you good news, verse 15, 
And the good news is that you should turn from these vain things. Part of the good news is the identifying of their idolatry. They should turn from these things to a living God, the real God. And that's because Paul knew that to accept Christ, and he hadn't even gotten to Christ yet in this presentation, okay? But he knew that to accept Christ means they must forsake false gods. Everybody's a worshiper. You and I are worshipers by default. You can't not be a worshiper. The question is, what, what do you worship? Or whom do you worship? And so Paul knows this. Paul knows that every human being is a worshiper, and we're either idolaters or worshiping the one true and living God in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, he identifies those false gods. In that case, he and Barnabas. <laughs> right? Like, we're just men, he says. Like you. Don't worship us. They must forsake these false gods. And so he confronts them, and he calls their worship vain. It's empty. Meaningless. Weightless. It can't hold up. And I think what's interesting is apparently the crowds didn't fully understand what he was saying because they're still trying to sacrifice to him. Assuming, you know, here these gods come down from heaven, they think. They healed this lame man. They're going to bring great blessing to their city. But now they're realizing, well, they're saying they're not gods. They're saying one, there is one, a Christ that's God, Eventually, that's kind of the implication here. And that we have to turn away from all of our panoply of other gods to follow him. And so apparently when they began to see the implications of what Paul and Barnabas were saying, then they were more susceptible to being twisted. Notice in verse 19, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, it's the crowds that were ready to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When they understood the implications of his gospel and his attack upon their idolatry, they stoned him. Now we see this throughout the book of Acts. When the gospel is preached with sincerity and clarity, When the gospel is preached, idolatry is by default confronted. People's false hopes are exposed and they are commanded to turn from them and to abandon them for Christ. And when you have that kind of clarity, that kind of saying, you're worshiping these things and they are false and here's the one true and living God, Here's his Christ. Worship him. When you have that kind of clarity and that kind of boldness in preaching, one of two things happens. People either blow you off, they get angry, they start mocking you, and then potentially try to kill you. That's the one. Or they repent and they're converted. It's one of two options. So there might be the mild forms of, of hatred, you know, just cold shoulder, ignoring you, ostracizing you, not calling you back. You don't get to hang out with your friends anymore because they're tired of hearing about it. They're going to associate with their, their other Christian friends who like to pursue their idols. They might begin to ostracize you, or you might get mocked. 
They might get angry. And in some cases, they might try to kill you. I don't think that day is far off in America. It says, whoa, it's dramatic. Well, we're killing millions of children for our idolatry in abortion. So why would that stop with you? Because you're going to preach an exclusive Christ that is getting at the identities, the sexual identities of people. They're going to interpret that as hate speech and abuse, psychological abuse. That's where we're headed. We start going after the idolatry, and idolaters either repent and are converted, or they get angry. So this means then that when you and I explain Jesus to someone, we also need to understand them enough to help them see their false hopes. To help them see their own idolatry. And how the true and living God will condemn them if they do not repent. Now we say it graciously. We say it patiently. We say it humbly. We say it with tears, with examples from our own lives. But we say it. And our tender tone, hear this, our tender tone will not blunt the knife edge of the gospel. So don't think, if I just say it tenderly enough, they won't hate me. They likely will. Or, they'll love you forever because you love them enough to tell them the truth and they repented. But this is the knife edge of evangelism. And I, I was kind of thinking back through that, that, that uh, interview, and I was wondering why the Babylon Bee guys didn't help Elon Musk see his idolatry and false hope. Why weren't they clear with him? What else was motivating their evangelism? They probably thought they could manipulate him into a decision apart from repentance. So, biblical evangelism preaches Christ and it confronts idolatry, but it doesn't stop there. Biblical evangelism actually presses the conscience and it aims for a response, it aims to persuade the unbeliever to convert to Christ. So that's our great hope. That is our our joy when we see sinners turn and embrace the Savior. So our gospel, our, our evangelism, it aims to persuade. Now if you would turn over to Acts 26. I think this is important to mention because we can fall off into two, pit, uh, uh, two extremes. Okay? We can think, typically in our, in our kind of churches where God is sovereign and he's going to save whom he's going to save, we think no persuasion necessary. We just share the gospel, people are going to come to faith. If they're elect, they're going to come to faith. That's one extreme. The other extreme is manipulation. Right? Manipulation. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I love this paragraph in Acts because it keeps us from, these, from both of these ditches. 
It keeps us from thinking of Paul as some kind of stoic, some kind of guy who just like drops the bomb and then just walks away. Like, yep. That's it's the furthest thing from what's happening here. His heart is fully in this, and he seeks to persuade others winsomely and lovingly. He's clear. He's utterly biblical, but he, he reasons with them and seeks to persuade them. All right? So here in Acts 26, Paul is defending himself before King Agrippa, and he's in the custody of another, of another leadership figure uh, called Festus. His name is Festus, but he, King Agrippa is the audience here. And in this chapter, Paul gives his own story of his conversion, his call to the gospel, and then he, his, and then he weaves in there at the end, kind of the climax of his, of his story is this beautiful statement of the gospel of Christ. And as he's explaining the good news of Jesus, Festus interrupts in verse 24. Notice where Luke picks this up. He says, as he was saying these things, as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, but it has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul doesn't back down when Festus says that he's crazy. Right? He keeps on preaching to Agrippa, and then he presses him with a probing question. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. So he's told him his testimony. He's told him the gospel. He's told him his things. And then, what about you? Do you believe these things? I know you do. I know because you've got that history. He knew knew Agrippa's background. And so he pressed it on him. And Agrippa feels the heat. Notice his response in verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Or it could be translated, you would persuade me to be a Christian. He feels the heat. It is particularized to Agrippa and his situation. And Paul didn't have any problem pleading with people to come to Christ. And Paul had the highest view of God's sovereignty. He didn't shy away from asking direct questions that forced an answer. I think sometimes we're afraid of doing that. We're afraid of making people feel awkward. We're afraid of trying to manipulate them in some way. What if they don't really mean it? Well, persuading with the truth is not the same thing as manipulation. Okay, so how are they different? Well, Paul's not leaning on any man-made or sort of underhanded trick to get people to make an outward profession. He's not like pulling a quick one on them. He's not hiding anything. He's not trying to trick them. In a previous church, my own father, he was a deacon, He was encouraged to walk down the aisle during an altar call to, quote, prime the pump. And what they meant by that was that it would make it easier for other people to follow. Now, it sounds innocent enough, but when you kind of actually think about that for a second, it's a man-made manipulation tactic where we try to trick people 
into thinking that other people are doing it, which isn't true. My dad was a Christian. He wasn't responding in faith to the gospel. But it's trying to, to kind of give the perception that other people are responding in faith to the gospel. They're being converted. So the person is kind of in flux. They should do it too. That's not straightforward, and it's not honest. But Paul is not doing anything like that here. Paul is pleading, yes. He's using emotion, yes. But his appeals are based squarely in God's truth. He is straightforward. He's, playing, he's laying all his cards on the table. And I love how, I love how straightforward this is here. He's, you know, he says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Or you would. And Paul said, verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but that all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Like, that's my goal. I want you to become like me, just not in prison, all right? Not with these chafings around your arms because of the, of the chains that I'm wearing. To you to know the Lord. That is my goal. So Paul clearly aimed in his gospel messages and presentations to persuade his audience to convert to Christ. And when someone does turn, when someone does receive Christ, when our evangelism is fruitful, we need to keep in mind that evangelism is the first step of disciple-making. This is the last thing we'll say under this question. It's the first step of disciple-making. In other words, it's not like an end in itself. Conversions. And that's wonderful. And that's great. Eternal destinies are shifted. And we praise God for that. We rejoice like heaven rejoices. Luke 15. But it's not the end. It's the beginning. You could turn to Acts 14. Maybe we could obviously turn to the Great Commission here too, couldn't we? Matthew 28. The Great Commission is to make disciples by baptizing, that's evangelism, and also by teaching them to observe all that, the, that Christ has commanded. So there's maturity, edification. So conversion is only the first step in this process, of this disciple-making process. And I know it's obvious, but when others convert through our evangelism, they convert to a life of discipleship. Elon Musk can't just say a quick prayer and then continue on in the life that he currently lives in rebellion against Christ. That's not, that's not conversion. Because it's not unto a life of discipleship. Conversion is not the end, it's only the beginning. These converts must grow up to maturity in the context of the church. We see this back in Acts 14. So here, Luke wants us to make sure that we understand that conversion means a disciple has been born. A disciple has been made. And that disciple needs to be rooted in the local church for continued growth. Look in verse 21. This is kind of at the end of his missionary journey, this first missionary journey. He says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, when they had evangelized that city, and, notice the language, had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Luke connects, in verse 21, he connects the preaching of the gospel. He doesn't just say you made a convert. 
He connects it with discipleship, with making disciples. Do you see that? This implies that our evangelism is a first step in the process. It's not the end of the process. And then the following verses, Paul's missionary strategy, what he does also confirms this. Think about this. Like many missionaries today, they could be content with just people coming to faith in Christ and then move on, right? It's not what Paul does. Paul could have been content simply seeing conversions in these cities, but he wasn't. Luke tells us here that Paul revisited these cities to strengthen their souls and to make sure that elders were appointed so that these churches would grow up to full maturity. Why is that? Because Paul knows that a mature church will have a powerful evangelistic ministry in the city. Did you catch that? A mature church will have a powerful evangelistic influence in the city. That's not the only reason he appoints elders, but that's a major one. So as relieved as we are when we see someone come to Christ, we need to remember that they must get connected to a church where they can be equipped, they can learn to serve, and they can become part of the evangelistic effort. So, that's our biblical definition of evangelism. All right? Go back to our first evangelism is the preaching of Christ and the confronting of idolatry with the aim to persuade to a life of discipleship. But there's more that we can glean from Scripture that will help us understand evangelism. We've kind of hammered out an extended definition. We've looked at a few passages. But let's step back. Scripture also shows us how evangelism is carried out. So that's our second question. What is it? And then second, how is it carried out? What does it look like in the New Testament? Now some of this will be slightly redundant, a little bit. I've tried to avoid that. Um, But there is a little bit of overlap between what we said just a moment ago. But let's start here. Okay? From almost the very first pages of Scripture, we learn something very relieving and encouraging about evangelism. You ready for it? Evangelism does not start with you and I. Oh, well, what? Like, who does it start with? (laughs) Who else is there? It starts with God. God himself is the great evangelist. And he sees to it that our puny little evangelistic efforts are full of his power. So we could say it like this. Evangelism is carried out first through God's initiative and his empowerment. He is the great initiator of all evangelism. If it weren't for God, there would be no evangelism. He designed it. He made it possible. He came to us first. God is the great evangelist. He is, it's, it's through his initiative, and it's also through his empowerment that you and I evangelize. So it begins with God. Evangelism is carried out first and, and fundamentally through God's initiative and his empowerment. And I, left, I wrote a whole string of text there um, for, you to, for you to look at later, kind of study through later. 
God Himself gives the first word of hope, the very first instance of good news after the fall. In Genesis 3.15, He promises a son will be born to Eve and her line, and that son will crush the head of the snake. We've all seen that. Skipping over a lot of the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, listen to what God says. God says in Ezekiel 34, 11 and 12, He says, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. Who's doing the seeking? God. He's the shepherd. God is the shepherd. He's going to do the seeking and the saving and the rescuing. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel's amazing because it says he's going to do this through a David, a new David. And we see this playing out in John 10, where Jesus echoes, likely echoes this passage in Ezekiel when he says he's the good shepherd. He says he has other sheep beyond Israel. And listen to his promise. Listen to what he says in John 10, 16. I have other sheep, he says, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Not they might. I hope they'll listen to my voice. Not what he says. I have sheep, definitively have sheep. These are unbelievers currently that belong to him. They're Gentiles, they don't belong to Israel. They're not of this fold, he says. They're outside of the nation. I have those sheep. They're scattered abroad. And when they hear my voice, they're going to recognize it. They're going to follow me. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So that means that God, in Christ, is the great evangelist. He is seeking and saving his own. I didn't even write this down, but in Ephesians 2, we've looked at this before, where it says that Christ came and preached peace to you. He came and preached peace. And the he there is talking about Jesus. So in each one of our lives, Jesus, through, the, through whoever gospel intermediary was there and telling us the gospel, whether it was our home church or our parents or a friend, that was Jesus himself preaching peace to you. So our evangelism efforts are through God's initiative and empowerment. We have to start here because it's where the Bible starts. And God's power guarantees our ultimate success in evangelism. He fuels our confidence. We're going to talk about this a lot next week. He promises that he will find a sheep and we get the privilege of being his mouthpiece of being the voice of the shepherd, so to speak, calling out to his sheep. We don't know who they are, but he does. And we can be certain that he will save his own. And we know that he uses us as means. He uses people like the prophets of old, his apostles in the New Testament, his church today. But Acts 2, another text up here, Acts 2 reminds us that even as we evangelize, it's the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who is energizing our efforts, who's making them effective, 
who is empowering the witness of the church. In other words, without the Spirit, our witness would be ineffective. Ineffective. The Spirit empowered the first apostles for witness, and He is our empowerment today. Talk more about that next time. But what does He empower? What's kind of the method for carrying out evangelism? Well, He empowers the bold proclamation of the truth. And that's the second way the Bible describes evangelism as being carried out through bold preaching. It really starts with the apostles. So we might say through bold apostolic preaching, at least in Acts. Through bold preaching. So if you flip back, we just talked about Acts 2 and the empowerment of the Spirit. If you flip back there, after the apostles receive the Spirit, Peter proclaims, the next thing he does is he preaches. He proclaims a bold message in Acts 2. He tells these Jews, these unbelieving Jews at the moment, these Jews that crucified Jesus, he tells these Jews that the Spirit, the promised Spirit of the Old in the Old Testament that was promised for the New Covenant, this Spirit is being poured out right now, just happened, in fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then he goes on to tell them that Jesus of Nazareth, this man, what appeared to be a man, he, he is a man, he is also God, he is the Christ, and they crucified him. That's how he ends the message. You crucified him. And they must repent or perish. What Peter says. Clear, clear preaching, no gimmicks, straightforward, sincere explanation of a crucified and risen Savior. And 3,000 people repent and believe upon that simple proclamation. Look in verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The same pattern continues throughout Acts. Again and again, it's through patient, bold, sincere explanation of Christ and the confronting of all false hopes that people, Jews and Gentiles alike, they come to believe in the Savior. And it's also through this method of bold preaching that many are stirred up against the apostles. But it is the method that God has assigned for our evangelistic efforts. Simple explanation of Jesus. Like Philip, we must open our mouths and talk about him. But, it's not all. After this preaching event, right here in Acts 2, I want you to notice something else. Luke describes another way, a complementary way, that evangelism is carried out. And it's not through the apostles only. It's also through vibrant body life. It's through vibrant body life, through, through the, the life in the church, as people are really believing what they're hearing, and they're putting it into practice, and they're loving each other, and they're meeting needs, Immediately after the conversion of this group, these 3,000 souls in verse 41, 
Luke tells us that this new church was devoted to the truth, the apostles' doctrine, and they were devoted to living out that truth with each other, to praying for each other, to breaking bread, to doing all these things that that it describes. We'll just go ahead and read it. And they, were devoted them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. This is verse 42. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, so they were unified. They had all things in common. They shared. They were all selling their possessions had belonging, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So as this church was devoted to the truth, as they were learning to love each other, Luke tells us that the end result at the end of the paragraph. He says the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. In other words, as the church matured, Quickly, admittedly quickly in this case, as the church matured, so did the power and effectiveness of her witness. A vibrant, healthy church will have an evangelistic impact. Or else it's not a vibrant, healthy church. Let's think about this for a minute. Let's think about why this is the case. Kind of fan this out. Let me give you just a few thoughts here. As we grow in faith and obedience, as the Spirit produces more and more of His fruit in our lives, we are like living billboards of the transforming power of the gospel. We preach that Jesus transformed sinners, right? We do preach that, because He does that. I wasn't very enthusiastic. And when we learn to embrace and live the gospel, when we learn to overcome our fears and anxieties, when we battle depression with the truth, when we stop clicking on those pornographic images and learn to believe the warnings and the promises of Scripture, when that starts happening, we stop gossiping. We start laying our lives down for one another. We start sharing what we have. We are demonstrating the truthfulness of the gospel in a very powerful way. The sins that we were once enslaved to, the sins that the world is enslaved to, they really are losing their power. There really is hope for a transformed life through Christ. We are not who we want to be, but we are not who we used to be. We're currently growing because of Jesus and only because of Him. And the world has no hope like that. The best they can do is cope. Cope with their sin patterns. They don't have any transforming power. And God has purposed to use a humble, growing church as a mighty weapon in a, in a location. As they see, whoa, those people are different. Like, how does he not respond like that at work? They seem to really care for each other. I, my, my family's just ripping each other to shreds. Wonder what they have. What's different about them? We're living billboards of the transforming power of the gospel when we are devoted to maturing each other. And second, when other people come into the church, 
and they come into a mature church like that or a maturing church, a growing church, and they see the real deal, they see transparent humility, they see love, this quickly exposes them if they're not the real thing. And that is a grace. That is a grace. We heard testimonies like that on Sunday night, didn't we? If you were here for the baptism. Praise God for that kind of clarity. Not just in the teaching, but in the practice among the saints. As we continue to grow, as we continue to overcome sin in our own lives, God will use that clarity to convict others, the mere example to convict others, to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Our Lord's pretty efficient in the way He does things. All right, that's the second thought. Third thought here. As you start maturing, as you start seeing your own idolatry, as you start seeing the lies that you're tempted to believe, and as you learn what it means to renew your mind and grow, as that starts happening in your life, guess what else happens? You yourself have more clarity to see into the lives of others, including unbelievers. You'll be more, you will more quickly hear your friend or family members enslaving sin come out. And you're going to say, whoa. They're, they're, they have crippled anxiety, that's what they're saying. But I used to have crippling anxiety, and I realized it was sinful fear. And I used to just think, man, if I can just medicate this or... or or drink myself to death, or if I could just watch enough Netflix shows, or I can distract myself enough, it'll go away. And that never ha- that, And I, I realized, wow, that's never happened because I'm idolized. I'm so afraid of this thing over here. But now Jesus' promises come in and that He will take care of me. He will protect me. And I'm learning to yield my will to Him in that area and really grow and actually acknowledge it as actually sin. And now I'm growing out of that. And you come to mom. Mom's an unbeliever. Mom's medicated for anxiety. Mom's blaming her anxiety on everything else. Guess what you can do now? You see it. Doesn't mean you just blow it up in that moment, but you see it for what it is. So now you are equipped to help her identify the idolatry there, identify the lies, and help her come to the one who can actually help her, to Jesus Christ. You will have an idea of, or at least some ideas of what kinds of idols they are serving because you are rooting them out in your own life. So you'll be able to lovingly address those lies and idols with more clarity than you had before. Why? How? Because you're growing. You're growing in discernment. You're growing in your own life. You're able to apply that to the lives of, of others. Um, I think I told you guys this before, uh, but about, I had an interaction with a guy on a plane one time from China. He'd never heard the gospel before, and he was, you know, just grinding out on something, you know, in his, his headphones. And it, was, it was rough. And, uh, and so he finally kind of took his headphones out, and I was like, what do you listen to? And he told me kind of what it was, some hardcore thing. And uh, I was like, what do you like about that? And he's like, it helps me deal with my anger. So I was like, does it work? <laughs> and he was like, uh, what? And I was like, does it work? Like, does it, are you, like, not angry anymore? And he's like, no. I was like, well, it doesn't sound to me like it's working. 
And he's like, by this point, he's kind of like, who are you, you know? <laughs> and he's like, well, do you have anger? And I was like, yeah. It's like, I mean, not as bad as I used to, but I'm growing out of it. But yeah, I, mean, I get angry sometimes, but yeah, I've got a solution. And he's just like, well, what's your solution? I'm like, well, it ain't that. Like, what's in your ears? I was like, it's going to take a little bit longer for me to explain this to you. Can I talk to you for like 10 minutes? I was like, it might kind of sting a little bit. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. So he's like super interested. So we talked about the gospel. We talked about Jesus. And I walked him through the process of repenting of anger. Right? But it re- involves trusting Jesus. So who is this man? Right? And so we talked about him. And he said at the end of that 10-minute conversation, if what you're saying is true, then my whole life has to change. Never heard of Jesus. I said, you got it. I said, you, you understand what I'm saying. He's like, I don't know if I can do that. So I tried to set him up with the Bible, and you know, he didn't even know where he could get one. Let's go. Let's go to him, huh? Yeah. So we, we need to help these people who are trapped in their idolatry know the Savior. <clears throat> the more you do that in your own life, the more quickly and more effectively you'll be able to do that in an unbeliever's life. So being part of a maturing church and investing deeply in that church um, actually will result in fruitful evangelism like we see here in Acts 2. And praise God, we're seeing this at Timberlake. Um, this sweet grace of God. I mean, obviously the nine baptisms last Sunday night. Um, but that's not all. Uh, there's, there's ways that, that evangelism is carried out. It's through vibrant body life. We could say the next one like this. It's, it's through identifying and providing for and sending evangelists to replicate churches. That's a long point. Um, I understand that. Uh, but I couldn't think of a way to condense it. I know I'm a little bit over. Wrapping up, okay? Evangelism is carried out, and I want you to see this, through identifying, providing for, and sending evangelists to replicate churches. So when we talk about evangelism, particularly personal evangelism, we don't often go here, because this is kind of corporate evangelism. This is how the church replicates. But this is part of evangelism, according to the scriptures, according to Acts. So I want you to have this as your category, even though we're not going to spend a lot of time on this in the rest of our series. We're going to see that we all have a responsibility to share the gospel. But Scripture does indicate that God will raise up some that are particularly gifted in evangelism, and they are called evangelists. As a church, it's our responsibility to identify these people. God promises to raise them up in a maturing church. So it's our responsibility to identify these people, to provide for them monetarily, and to send them out to replicate churches. Now, like I mentioned, the only person to ever take this title is Philip, so he's a good case study. He's called an evangelist in Acts 21.8, but long before that, he was identified as a godly leader by the Jerusalem congregation back in Acts 6, chapter 5. They chose him. The church chose him as one of the seven. Acts 6, 5. 
Then, fast forward to chapter 8, we see him preaching the gospel to the Samaritans and planting churches in their towns. Then we see him evangelizing the eunuch and baptizing that eunuch. Then, as chapter 8 comes to a close, we see him preaching the gospel to all the towns up the Palestinian coastline. And so it's clear that Philip, the evangelist, is a church planter. He's a church planter. He's establishing local congregations. And after Philip, the next logical place we should look is Paul. Now, Paul is never called an evangelist, like the title, evangelist. Why is that? That's because he's an apostle by title. That would be his formal title as an apostle. But Paul is repeatedly described in Acts, and he himself describes himself in his letters, as evangelizing, preaching the gospel. Sometimes it's just preaching, but it's the same word, the same verb, euangelizo. It's evangelizing again and again in Acts. And he's talking to unbelievers again and again in Acts. He's planting churches again and again in Acts. And the same pattern that we see in Philip, okay, back in Acts 8, that same pattern is given with greater specificity with Paul in Acts 13 and 14. Paul is affirmed by the church in Acts 13, the church of Antioch. He's affirmed by them. He's selected by the Holy Spirit for the new evangelistic mission. He's apparently supported by this church because he returns back to the same church after it's all over with to give a report. This church obviously sent him out to preach the gospel, and then he goes back and establishes leadership in the churches that he planted. So he's replicating the model so that those churches can raise up evangelists and send out more evangelists. So it's our job, the only point I'm making here is that the entire church is involved in identifying these especially gifted believers, these evangelists, and pastors, teachers. We didn't even talk about them, but a lot of overlap between the two of those. But evangelists, pastors, teachers, evangelists is one group there. It's our job to identify them and participate in their evangelistic efforts as we pray for them, as we train them, as we financially support them, and as we launch them out And this has to be part of our thinking when it comes to evangelism and to participating in evangelism. There's a corporate dynamic that happens in and through the local church. But just because you may not be gifted in evangelism as the the person, you know, sitting next to you is, you look over and say, I'm I'm not an evangelist like that guy or that gal. That doesn't mean you're off the hook. There's a final way the Bible describes evangelism being carried out, and it's, where we, it's what we normally think about when we hear this word, and it is through the day-to-day witness of individual believers in their spheres of influence. It's through the day-to-day witness of you and I, individual believers, in the various spheres of influence that the Lord has placed us in. He makes no mistakes where he has you. He's sovereign over that. And he intends to use you in those spheres of influence. As churches are planted, as they become, well, as these churches are planted, they become shining lights to the broken community around them. And as the churches grow in maturity, their gospel witness shines brighter and brighter. And each week we gather on Sundays to be edified, and then we scatter for the rest of the week into the world, into a hostile world 
We go to work. We interact with family. We engage our neighbors. You go to class. Each one of us is a little, quote-unquote, evangelist in our respective spheres of influence. And we see this very clearly in 1 Peter. And we're going to end here tonight. And I'm just going to point out a few texts and we'll close. First Peter, you can flip there if you're not already there. And we're effective witnesses in a couple ways in First Peter. We're effective witnesses as we learn to proclaim His excellencies. That's what First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? So that, in other words, you've been saved so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's one of our, that's to the church. The church, we're to all be proclaiming the excellencies of the God who saved us on a daily basis. So it starts with us as we learn to proclaim His excellencies. 1 Peter 2.9 It also happens as we learn to live godly lives as oppressed people in this world. In 1 Peter Chapter 2, 11, right after this paragraph, very next verse, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, thus unbelievers, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as we learn to live godly lives, to live out kind of what we talked about earlier, That's going to enhance our gospel influence. These unbelievers are going to see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And now Peter goes on down in this letter to apply that to all these various categories. He applies it to the government and our relationship with them. In verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be the emperor, governors, no, 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 no. He's going to go through that. He's going to talk about the workplace with servants who are subject to their masters. Even if they have to suffer for it, if they have a bad master, because they get to reflect Jesus, they get to be a witness in that scenario. He's going to go down to the wives in chapter 3 to be subject to their own husbands, even if they're unbelievers, even if some who do, do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see their respectful and pure conduct, he talks to the husbands there. So in the home life, in family life, in employment, in government, these are the the spheres of influence. And even in 1 Peter, the oppressed people in those spheres have opportunity to be the influencers. Gospel influencers, as they learn to live godly lives, even as oppressed people in this world. Chapter 3, we keep going. Another way that we're an effective witness is as we learn to intentionally bless our enemies. Verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. That's coming outside the church. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So he's saying to learn to live in a way that's intentionally, proactively blessing your enemies. And that's how we are an effective witness in this hostile 
world. So the more we suffer, the more we can bless, the more we can shine. And fourth and last, all this kind of culminates here in verse 13 and following. That we learn to be an effective witness as we learn to make a verbal defense of the hope that's within us. This is every Christian, no matter what your giftings are, called to make a verbal defense of the hope that's within us. Verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So again, 1 Peter is just chock full of instructions for us. And he's teaching us, Peter is teaching us, that it's through the day-to-day witness of individual believers in their spheres of influence that the gospel is promoted, carried out, evangelism is carried out at kind of that micro level all the way down. It starts with God. It happened in the past through this bold apostolic preaching. Churches were planted. They grew. As those churches grew, leaders were raised up, evangelists. They were sent out. They replicated more churches. We're here today. And now the rank and file, all of, all, all of us, every sphere of life, belongs to Christ and His Lordship. He has sheep out there. And it's, it falls on us to open our mouths like Philip and proclaim the gospel. So in the following weeks, we are going to um, look more at this. That's a framework, okay? That's a big picture framework of evangelism. Took us a long time to work through it, but we won't go back there. We'll just build on it, okay? Next, next time, we'll look at motivating evangelism. So what, how can we motivate ourselves biblically to be better evangelists? Week three, we're going to look at equipping for evangelism, and then finally, practical strategies for evangelism. So, again, to compare what you see here to the Babylon Bee, Evangelistic effort. Um, It's sad. It's grieving. But uh, the Scriptures, Christ Himself equips us to be very effective evangelists. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank You for a clear word. I pray that as You set the categories in our minds, that things would fall into place as we move forward in this series. And we look to You to to bring the increase um, both in our individual personal spheres of influence and corporately as you are raising up men here to go out from, uh, from us to plant churches in all the nations of the world so that Christ is honored. And uh, we look to you to do that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.